Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 14, we read, Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served them. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. In chapter 5 and 6 and 7, we were introduced to the king's constitution. Jesus gave us a sneak peek of what life is going to be like in the kingdom. And then now when you go to chapter 8, you see these series of healings that take place. Giving us a glimpse into a world where Jesus is present. Clearly we're reading about events in the past. But again, I'm going to suggest to you that we're given a kind of a peek into the future. Jesus has cleansed a leper in verses 1 through 4. He's healed the centurion's servant in verses 5 through 7. And now Peter's mother-in-law in in verses 14 and 15. And then a number of people who are demon-possessed in verse 16. Once again, Jesus touches and it provides healing. And it's the kind of healing that leads to grateful service in verse 15. And so the word of Jesus leads to deliverance from spiritual oppression and demonic possession. And so the Bible contains lots of stories of miraculous healing. In the Old Testament, there's the story of the Syrian general who's cleansed of leprosy in 2 Kings chapter 5. In the New Testament, we read about a man at Capernaum who's lowered from a roof in Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5, about the man who was healed by the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5, the woman in the synagogue who suffered for some 18 years of an issue of blood in Luke chapter 13, the man at Lystra whom Paul healed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when Paul is used by God and the Holy Spirit in that healing, he's later stoned for cooperating with God's Holy Spirit. We all could tell stories of loved ones in pain, in desperate need of healing. The truth is we all want healing. And when we ask and we answer the question, what is healing? It means a restoration to wholeness or a restoration to wellness. It's hard to believe that if you're a mother or a father or a grandmother or a grandfather that you wouldn't want your children healed. And it's hard to be clinical or even theological when your child or your grandchild is writhing in pain. Years ago, I took Anthony to the emergency room and he was quite literally writhing in pain. I've never seen a human being in that much pain, and I've been around a lot of pain. And when I got him to the hospital, they gave him a bed, and they gave him an IV drip, and the pain increased. And then they put morphine in his drip, 
and he still cried in pain. And my heart was crushed. My son was in horrible, unrelenting pain and nothing would make the pain go away. And I prayed. And I prayed as hard as I've ever prayed in my life. Something was causing him pain. There was something internal inside of him. We knew it wasn't his appendix because his appendix had already burst earlier in his life. They had to cut open his abdomen, remove his internal organs, scrape the inside of his stomach, put all of his organs back, sew him back up. So we knew that that wasn't the problem. And finally, they did exploratory surgery and they discovered that scar tissue had wrapped around his large intestine and caused his bowel to shut down. The doctor had to remove the aggravating tissue. And I'll never forget, while I was waiting in the surgical ward, there was a woman and she cried as she heard her father openly weep over the pain that he was experiencing from an infected wound. She had never seen her father cry before. It shook her to the core. And some of you have experienced that kind of pain and difficulty and heartache. And so you can imagine people want to know the truth about what does the Bible say? What is the truth about God healing people? And the Bible teaches that God himself is the source of healing. In Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 14, it says, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Saved me and I'll be saved, for you're my praise. God has the sovereign right. To heal or not to heal. Jesus has both the power and the authority to heal. Power means the ability to do something. Authority means the right to do certain things or to refrain from doing certain things. When the servants of Jesus act under his authority, power and healing often occurs. The Bible gives at least four reasons to believe and expect healing. I think the number one, because of God's identity. He is Jehovah Rapha, or what the Bible calls Rapheka. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, there is a passage of scripture where the Lord is speaking to the children of Israel. He says, hear the voice of the Lord. And he says, as he says, hear the voice of the Lord, he invites the people listening to think about all of the things that God has said to them concerning his relationship with them. And he basically says, listen to what I have to say and please be open to doing what I have to say. Because if you'll do what I say, the promises and the benefits that I've promised, they're going to come to pass. But guess what? Rebellion and disobedience is going to bring great difficulty and even diseases. And at the end of chapter, 50, or chapter 53 and verse 4, he identifies himself as, for I am the Lord who heals you. And of course, in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 and 4, because of what Christ has done on the cross. And number 3, because of what, what he has promised in James chapter 5, verse 15. We're invited to come to him. We're invited to ask him for help. 
And number four, because of what the Holy Spirit can do. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11, Paul, in writing to the people at Rome, he speaks to the fact that the Holy Spirit, that same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, if that is the Spirit who dwells in you, and that's the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that he can give life to your mortal bodies. The same Holy Spirit who participated in the creation of the planet, the same Holy Spirit who indwells every believer has the ability to powerfully intercede in our life. And so in verse 14, it says, Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. Where was Peter's house located? In Capernaum. We know that from Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel. John's gospel tells us that Andrew and Peter were brothers from Bethsaida in John chapter 1, verse 44, which has caused some little bit of alarm for some people. They say, well, look, Mark tells us Peter's house is in Capernaum. John says that they're from Bethsaida. Well, does this mean that the Bible can't be trusted? Does this mean that there's a contradiction? And again, I am shocked and surprised how so many people are willing to look for reasons not to believe that the Bible is true instead of the obvious answer. On the surface, you might think that there's no logical explanation, but it's really quite simple. Peter moved. Most of you are way too young to remember the Beverly Hillbillies growing up, but remember on TV, they loaded up the truck and they moved to Beverly Hills, that is. In other words, people do. They go from one place to another. He loaded up the wife. He loaded up the kids. He loaded up the mother-in-law. And he went to Capernaum. And by the way, it isn't really that far. It would be like moving from, well, it would be like moving from Lakewood to Littleton. It's really not that far. One Bible teacher explains that Peter moved from the place of occupational prosperity to be closer to Jesus. And again, does it shock you that Peter was married? Yes, he has a wife. Yes, his wife has a mom. Yes, his wife is sick. Now again, Forbidding to marriage and exalting celibacy over marriage wasn't really a part of the early church. According to church tradition, Peter's wife was an important partner in his ministry. And according to church tradition, she died a martyr's death on the very same day that Peter was put to death. Mark's gospel also includes the fact that the healing took place on a Sabbath day in chapter 1 verse 21. The order of events seemed to be that Jesus is in the synagogue at Capernaum. He heals the Roman centurion. He's making his way to Peter's house. In, in, in chapter 1, verse 21 of Mark's gospel, it says, Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. 
Luke's gospel gives us the added information that he stood over the place where she was sick and he rebuked the fever. The word fever, by the way, in the original language means fire. We, we can read in, in the text, she was on fire. Now again, it doesn't mean literal fire. It means burning up with fever. And apparently the fever was high enough that she was actually incapacitated. And the disciples began the very good practice of asking Jesus for help. Jesus, by the way, like I said, is the source of healing. Remember, healing in the Bible is a restoration to wholeness or wellness. And Matthew's gospel omits the information about asking Jesus. But once again, we're given no information about the mother-in-law. Other than that she is Peter's wife's mother. We're not told anything about her prayer life. We're not told anything about her personal life. We're not told anything about her spiritual condition. No conditions are asked. And the reason why I think this becomes important is because some people are taught that if they just believed harder, if they could just generate more prayer or more faith, that Jesus might heal them. But I don't find any evidence whatsoever in the Bible to support the idea that Jesus' ability or inability is based on anything other than his sovereign will. Now, again, I'm willing to concede that Jesus works in different ways under certain times. I'm willing to concede that there is an inhibition or a prohibition. Can hardness of heart and unbelief restrict God's work? Perhaps, but it can't restrict his love. It can't force his hand. It can't undermine his sovereignty. I believe God can heal anyone. Even if they don't want to be healed. Does that shock you? The reason why I think that this is important is, especially if you're a mom or a dad or a, or a grandma or a grandpa, and you have a, 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 an infant who's incapable of communicating any kind of or expressing any kind of belief or value, do you think it's okay to pray for them and to even trust that God might heal them? I would also point out that Jesus withheld certain works on the basis of certain people's unbelief, but with the leper... And with the centurion, and here, Matthew leaves us with the impression, once again, the overarching impression with all three, that Jesus wants to help. Isn't that your reading? It isn't that he's reluctant to help. He wants to help. He wants to heal. And in verse 15, it says, so he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she arose and served them. Jesus heals with a personal, tender touch. By the way, in those days, people believed that the fever was the illness, not just a symptom of the disease. Again, they feared touching the person, thinking that they might be defiled. So imagine living in a world where you think, again, if you touch leprosy, you get leprosy and Oddly enough, there were certain kinds of diseases that were contagious. 
Or if you touch a person who's fevered, you will get that fever. Again, they feared touching the person. D.A. Carson writes, quote, the touch did not defile the healer, but healed the defiled, unquote. And I love that because, again, it speaks to the reality that Jesus isn't afraid to get close to you. He's not afraid that he's going to get your cooties. Or that he's going to be somehow defiled by coming close to you. John Corson writes, quote, You can always tell a person who's been touched by Jesus because that person will begin to minister. When you're touched by the Lord, you can't help but say, Who can I reach out to and, and help? Unquote. She was saved to serve, Barclay writes. God didn't save you or heal you just so you could remain idle. And so there's a clue. There's, there's a little window that's presented to us. The Lord God saves us, but he saves us to serve. Peter's mother-in-law was not healed because she served, but rather healed to serve. And I think that this is an important distinction. Good deeds didn't release God's grace and mercy. God's grace and mercy released God's servant. And so it's true for you. It's God's grace and God's mercy that releases you to do the work of the ministry. To help instead of hinder. To serve rather than to stay alone. Has Jesus touched you? Has Jesus healed you? And if Jesus has touched you and Jesus has healed you, has your response been grateful service to him? I would hope so. Some of you even prayed that kind of a prayer. Lord, if you'll just touch me, if you'll just heal me, if you'll just deliver me from this ongoing besetting circumstance, I'll love you and I'll serve you. Did you keep your promise? It's not too late. You know, Jesus didn't have to tell her to claim her healing or stand on her healing just in case the symptoms returned. The fact that the woman serves after her healing speaks of the completeness of the healing and the gratitude that's inside of her heart. There seems to be three groups of people who enjoy God's special attention. Number one, the brokenhearted. Number two, the repentant. Number three, the faithful, this should fill each and every one of us with a profound sense of hope. The Bible says he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In Psalm 147, 3, we read, he heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. Imagine you're a person who's crushed. And you just say, Lord, I feel like I'm crushed. Guess what? You're a good candidate. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, we read, If my people who are called by my name 
will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, the prophet says, But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. I know for some of you, you go, I don't think I like that passage. I've spent a lot of my time trying to get skinny. I don't want to be fat like a stall-fed calves or like, who's the guy on the Subway sandwich commercial who lost all that weight? Jared, yes, and then he fell off the wagon. And so they fired him. I think they may have hired him back. But here's the point. Being fat in the Bible isn't just about a weight issue. It speaks of prosperity and health. And so the issue is the brokenhearted receive help. The repentant receive help. The faithful receive help. The leper came directly to Jesus. The centurion's servant was healed as a result of the centurion's request. Here, Jesus goes directly to the woman and touches her. Again, if you've been following along in the passage, this should tell you something. We can go directly to Jesus for healing. We can go on the behalf of others. Jesus can go to anyone, anywhere, anytime he pleases. And so... There's a healing with a word. Look at verse 16. It says, when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Note, he cast out the spirits with a word. Not with bizarre rites and rituals. Not with persuasion or manipulation, by now you probably realize that Matthew is thrilled with the word that Jesus speaks. And you see, this becomes part of your invitation. It isn't just simply to come to church. It isn't even simply just to open up your Bible. It isn't just simply to read the text. It's to start to get you to fall in love with Jesus and with what he has to say. So that when you look at what he has to say, you go, look what Jesus has said. To put it differently or in a simple way, Matthew treasures the word that Jesus speaks. Mark speaks about the works that Jesus does. Luke focuses on the mission that Jesus accomplishes. John appreciates the person of Jesus. And so if you're wondering, well, why do I have to read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John? It's for the same reason that you're not content with just what one simple person has to say about the person that you love. You want to hear from everybody. If it means you'll know the person who you love a little bit better. Remember, this was a Sabbath day. And so the people of Capernaum were at the synagogue. They come home after the synagogue. The sun sets, and when the sun sets, the, 
The Sabbath day is over, and now people were free to come from hither and yon to bring the people to Jesus. And so they all showed up at Peter's house. You're going to discover, if you don't already know, that healing on the Sabbath was frowned on in that culture. Healing on the Sabbath was actually forbidden. In that culture and society, you could take emergency measures to keep a person from getting worse, but you couldn't take measures to make them better. And so Matthew tells us that after the sun set, many who were demon-possessed were brought to Jesus And Jesus healed them with a word. And this is one of the amazing aspects of the ministry of Jesus. Demons are subject to him. But again, it becomes a picture. It becomes a picture of what life is going to be like when Jesus is in charge and Jesus is in control. As you can imagine, culture and world seems to be a kind of a place where darkness accelerates, that it Fills a place or it retreats from a place. And you may have been in circumstances where it looked very, very dark. And then Jesus shows up. And again, that becomes part of the picture. In this broken world, disease is subject to Jesus. In this broken world, demons are subject to to Jesus. And the fact that Jesus will confront demonic powers sets the stage for future acts of power and revival. Can people be controlled by demons? According to the Bible, they can. According to the Bible, there's an invisible world occupied by angels and demons, an invisible and unseen world. And this is why Paul will later say that we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of darkness. But here's something else we learn. Demon-possessed people respond to the power of Jesus to the authority of Jesus, to the word of Jesus. And again, we learned what we've learned earlier. One word from Jesus can transform your life. It can transform a life. Again, we live in a culture that broadly rejects the supernatural and malevolent demonic activity. But the Bible teaches that there is a supernatural world. The Bible teaches that Satan targets the mind. That's exactly what he did with Eve. That he targets the body. That's exactly what he did with Job. That he targets the will. That's exactly what he did with David. And so if your target is the mind or the body or the will... What are Satan's tools? Well, his weapons are lies, ensuring ignorance of God's will or becoming impatient with God's will or seeking to act independently of God's will. And and again, this is why knowing and believing and trusting God becomes such an important part of spiritual warfare. And what are the characteristics of a demonized culture? Well, when we see the presence of demons, like prior to the flood, like during the first century, 
the characteristics of a demonized culture are idolatry and spirit guides and rampant sexual immorality. Sound familiar? If we look at the world of Noah before the flood, if we look at Sodom and Gomorrah, Peter describes Lot's experience of living in, in Sodom that he was, quote, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, look it says he was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard, unquote. You can imagine when a culture embraces lies when a culture willfully embraces ignorance of God's will, when a culture, or even a church, or a Christian, becomes impatient with God's will, or begins to act independently of God's will, you become a soft target for spiritual distress. And so... Paul writes that foolish hearts are darkened in a world that's distressed and overcome by demons. In all fairness, Paul describes the Gentile culture as a group of people who knew God in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 20, refused to glorify him as God in chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, changing the truth about God in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 1 in Romans, rejecting the knowledge of God in chapter 1, verse 26, so that God gives them over to uncleanness and idolatry. God gives them up to vile passions. God gives them over to a reprobate mind, which means a mind void of judgment and so that people know that sin will be judged but they don't care and they take pleasure in it anyway and guess what if you are a person who goes I know in my mind that God is going to judge my sin and I don't care then that's strong evidence that you're in trouble you're in big trouble Were it not for the gospel of Jesus, were it not for the power of Jesus, for, if it were not for the, for the grace of Jesus, you would be a slave to sin. In John's gospel, we read, now is the judgment of this world, in John chapter 12, verse 31. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. I want you to think about that for just a moment. When Jesus is present, demons disappear. When Jesus is unwelcome and absent, demons reappear. And look what it says in the text. And Jesus, and, and he healed all who were sick. Jesus has the power to help all. And by the way, in the text, the emphasis is on all. And he healed all 
who were sick. There was no need. There was no desperate circumstance that, that lie beyond the ability of Jesus to help. Jesus had the power over disease as well as demons. And the point of the passage is that no one was beyond his reach. No one was beyond his help. And I want you to think about this because, again, as you follow along in the text and you begin to realize that Jesus has been at work and Jesus has been at work and it started early on when he cast out a demon in the synagogue. He casts out, uh, he heals the sick in the afternoon and he's at Peter's house all evening and all evening he's healing the sick and all evening he's healing those people who are demon possessed and you would have to think that at some point fatigue is going to set in. You would think at some point because Jesus is 100% human that it's just going to all become way too much. But you know what's really remarkable about the text? We never read, we never read, we never ever read in the New Testament. And he was too tired to help. It had been a long day and he just said, Closed for business. Jesus never saw people in their need as a nuisance. Isn't that good to know? Especially if you've had dealings with churches and leadership that you just felt like, he's too busy, he's too busy, he can't help me. I know he's busy. I know they're busy. They're just too busy to put me on the prayer chain. They're just too busy to go to the hospital. They're just too busy to help. But the scriptures never distinguish between the private Jesus and the public Jesus. And I wonder how many people were there because they loved Jesus. And how many people were there because they loved what they thought that Jesus could do for them. And you might be thinking, well, is that wrong? Is it wrong? Is it, is it wrong? Is it wrong to want to get something from Jesus? And remember what I said to you earlier when we started off our study and I said, hey, look, if you're a, a grandfather or a, a father, mother, grandmother, if you have loved ones in your lives, you have loved ones in your life and you go and you care about them and you're asking for things from them. We all ask for things from God. Is it wrong to ask for things from God? I don't think so. But I do think that there are certain kinds of people who their whole life is characterized by simply asking for things from God, but they never press into a friendship and a fellowship and a relationship with God. There are some people in the so-called faith movement who have a genuine love for the Lord Jesus, but they fail to see that God is a sovereign God and he will sometimes withhold healing for reasons known only to him. There are still others who rarely, if ever, ask God for anything, even healing, because they've resigned themselves to believe that God won't heal them. Both of those positions are false. The position that God will heal everybody, every time, false. That he won't heal anyone at any time, that too is false. 
Does God really ask people to get into two lines, one line for those that he'll heal and another line that all they have to look forward to is disappointment? I'm going to suggest to you that the question's unfair. The reason why it's unfair is because God knows things that you don't know. God's answers are yes or no or wait or I have something better for you. But Jesus can and does heal. Look at this. Healing with the word. Look what it says in verse 17. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. The passage that Matthew cites is Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. He sees what's happening in Capernaum that day and that night as a fulfillment of scripture. The passage in Isaiah 53, 4 reads, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The passage Isaiah uses in the original Hebrew are words of sacrificial significance. Griffith Thomas suggests that Matthew is hinting at Christ's future atonement, but the application in the context appears that Jesus' ministry of healing is what Griffith Thomas calls his sympathetic entrance into human suffering. It isn't just healing in order to make a theological point. It's healing because he really cares about you, for real. He isn't just simply trying to make a point among the people that he's an extraordinary person with an extraordinary message, although he is an extraordinary person and he does have an extraordinary message. He took, look, he himself, look at verse 17. He himself took our infirmities it's in the active voice. You may not have any clue what that means. It's the Greek word lambano. But in the active voice, it means to receive, but it also means to receive voluntarily. It doesn't mean I'm going to do this because I'm the second person of the Trinity and this has been outlined by God and this is what I have to do because in order to convince you that I'm a sympathetic savior who cares about you, I'm going to do this. That's not what it means. It actually means just the opposite. It means that he voluntarily looks at you and your circumstance and your sin condition and whatever it is that you're going through. He looks at you and he voluntarily cares about you and is willing to do what's necessary in order to deal with you. Again, Griffith Thomas writes, quote, Matthew uses physical words, infirmities and diseases, while Isaiah's reference is to mental. He uses the term griefs and sorrows, yet all are connected as cause and effect with sin on the one hand. In other words, for the person who says, hey, well, why, why does Matthew say this and Isaiah say that? And doesn't that again prove that the Bible is not true? No, it proves again exactly. Exactly the opposite that Matthew is reaching into the text of Isaiah in order to point out the reasons why Jesus is doing what Jesus is doing. 
the servants bearing infirmities, carrying sicknesses, is consistent. In Isaiah chapter 53, it's quoted by other New Testament writers, including Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Where again, strictly speaking, Isaiah 53, 4 speaks of the servants bearing infirmities, carrying sicknesses. But it's in the context of sin. And it shows the way that he bears the sickness of others through suffering and death. Now remember, at this point in Matthew's gospel, you may have no clue that Jesus is going to bear anything. But we're given a hint that that's exactly what he will do. He will deal with the root problem of your heart condition, which is sin and rebellion. So Matthew applies this to the work that Jesus does in his ministry. Does that mean that he is unconcerned about the work on the cross? No. But when Jesus touches the leper, when Jesus heals the Gentile, when Jesus touches the woman, he doesn't do it in order to avoid infection or avoid confrontation with the powers of man or demons. He's already resigned himself that he is going to confront disease. And how is he going to do that? By confronting sin. And how is he going to do that? By dying on the cross. He is going to confront Satan. He's already done that. Some have interpreted the scripture to mean that God must heal all people at all times. But is that true? In Isaiah 53, 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes were healed. The word healed is rapha. It can refer to a physical healing. It can also refer to a spiritual healing. The real question we should ask, does Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, have physical or spiritual healing in mind? Wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities seems to suggest that the prophet has sin in mind as the primary meaning. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Peter says, Who himself, Jesus, bore our sin in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. And then the very next sentence, For you were like sheep going astray, but you've returned to the shepherd, who's become the overseer, of your souls. The presence of disease and the presence of sickness is always just an indication of something far worse, far deeper, far more disturbing. And that's the problem of sin and the spiritual condition of the soul. Peter makes it plain that the healing referred to in Isaiah is spiritual. 
Hank Hanegraaff in his book, Christianity and Crisis, suggests the following for the sake of argument. He says, suppose Isaiah 53.5 does refer to healing. Does it follow that God must heal everyone every time? If healing is in the atonement and is as, as accessed by faith, then those who die due to a lack of faith must also remain in their sins. They die without hope. Why? Because if healing and salvation are included in this passage, they have to be accessed the same way. And if one does not have enough faith to make oneself well, it follows that one cannot have enough faith to be saved, unquote. And some misguided faith teachers insist that healing is a right and not a privilege. Kenneth Hagin wrote, quote, I believe that the plan of God our Father, that no believer should ever be sick. It is not, I boldly state, it is not the will of God my Father that we should suffer with cancer and dread diseases which bring pain and anguish. No, he says, it is God's will that we be healed, unquote. The problem with Mr. Hagen's statement, it's not true. By his own admission, by his own testimony, he was diagnosed with a heart problem. And he had what he himself conceded was an incurable blood disease. He died on September 19, 2003 at the age of 86 of a cardiovascular issue cardiovascular disease which killed him. You see, it's one thing to theologically hold the position, but it's another thing to realize that, guess what? Reality doesn't reflect that that's true. The Bible doesn't guarantee unlimited health. The Bible doesn't guarantee unlimited wealth. But the Bible does promise comprehensive healing through Jesus Christ in a final resurrection. We have a gracious father. He loves us. We have a sovereign God. He loves us. But he won't be manipulated by bad teaching and bad theology. The Bible teaches that God is concerned about sickness and is willing to do something about it. The Bible also has a lot to say about suffering, giving us reasons for suffering and reactions to suffering and listing the sources of suffering. We know that suffering can be caused by satanic activity and ungodly people and living in a broken world and having a fallen nature. But the Bible teaches that God heals and the Bible teaches that we can ask for healing. And that we can even expect healing. But the Bible doesn't teach that we can demand healing. An enthusiastic believer in Christ, Dan Richardson, lost his battle with cancer. But his life demonstrated that even though the physical body can be destroyed by the disease, the spirit remains triumphant. It's too bad Kenneth Hagin didn't have this because at Dan Richardson's funeral service, this was handed out. Quote, cancer is so limited. It cannot cripple love. It cannot shatter hope. It cannot corrode faith. It cannot eat away peace. It cannot destroy confidence. It cannot kill friendship. It cannot shut out memories. It cannot silence courage. 
It cannot invade the soul. It cannot reduce eternal life. It cannot quench the spirit. It cannot lessen the power of the resurrection. Do we hate disease? Of course we do. Do we, in sensitivity and submission, understand that we don't want our children sick? Of course we don't. Should the Christian seek healing? Of course he or she should. God makes it clear that we can and should seek answers to our prayers, including healing for our loved ones and ourselves. And God has declared himself to be the healer of his people. That sickness reveals a spiritual condition that requires a spiritual solution. So in James 5.15, it says, And the prayer, the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven. The Bible says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. It judges thoughts and attitudes. Nothing, nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The following is a wonderful prayer by Norwegian theologian, Ole Hollisby, he writes, Lord, if it will be to your glory, heal suddenly. If it will glorify you more, heal gradually. If it will glorify you even more, may your servant remain sick a while. And if it will glorify your name even more, take him to yourself in heaven. You see, a lot of people don't want to link the reality of our physical condition to the glory of God. It's easy to trust God when everything's going right. Sometimes it's a little bit difficult that we have to stretch just a little bit more to trust Him when things are going with a little difficulty. Love Him. Serve him. Ask him for healing. But remember, it's the kind of healing that will raise you up from affliction so that you can serve others in gratitude and grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your love and thank you for the word of God. Thank you that you are the Lord who heals and that we can with confidence and even expectation, ask you, Lord, to touch our body. And even more importantly, to reach down and touch our soul. Lord, we know that sometimes through the generous acts of medicines and men and women, that, Lord, you use them for your glory to bring, bring about wholeness and wellness. But Lord, we know that ultimate wholeness and ultimate wellness lies in trusting Jesus for forgiveness, for grace, for strength, and for the future. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Let's stand.